Hello there, this is Lisa Borders, and on this podcast, I'll connect with people from all walks of life. We'll talk about overcoming adversity, transmuting the shadow, and moments of illumination. We'll explore what it means to fulfill our potential while maintaining our most authentic selves. And we'll reflect on the lessons we're learning all along the way. If you feel inspired by what you hear, subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the community at lisaborders.us. Thank you for joining me, and this is Enlightened. Hello, Stacey Abrams, my girlfriend, my sister from another mister. So delighted to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Listen, I feel like we go back a hundred years, but I know it's only about 18 headed toward 20 when we met during Leadership Georgia, I think. Does that sound right? That is it, 2004. Oh my gosh. And neither one of us were elected, nor had we been elected, but there's a whole nother story there. We'll get to that. Let me take a step back. Can you help me learn a little bit more because I think I know everything, but invariably, whenever we talk, I find out something new. Can we talk about what it was like growing up Abrams in Mississippi and then Georgia? Because that's a really interesting story and there's some parallels between our lives, but I'd love to hear your part. As I grew up in Mississippi, my mom was a librarian. My dad was a shipyard worker. I am the second of six kids. Uh, My oldest sister uh, is three years older. My youngest sibling is nine years younger, and it's 12 years between the youngest and the oldest. We divide naturally into two categories. They're the older three and the younger three. My taxonomy for my family or for my siblings is Andrea. My oldest sister is the captain. I'm finance and logistics. Leslie's the cruise director, and the younger three are just the crew. They get assigned (laughs) to what they need to be doing. Uh, and it worked. And for most of our lives, we were each assigned a child to be responsible for. So Andrea was responsible for Janine because Janine was the smallest and most easily breakable. I had Richard, who is Richard's four years younger than or five years younger than I am. Leslie was responsible for Walter. And one of the ways that took place was that you basically were the go-to person for that younger child. I tease Richard because when we were younger, uh, we grew up in Mississippi. There was only one television or two television stations. You had ABC or PBS. And for anyone under the age of 40 listening to this, this is back during the time before you could count on reruns. It's certainly before those of the Gen Y or Gen Z time. It was back when cartoons came on Saturdays at 7 a.m. and they were done by noon. Oh my God, Stace, we're yeah. we're dating ourselves. This we is are. like when TV went off at night. You remember exactly, that? Exactly. So this is exactly the story. So Richard loved cartoons. He actually is a comic book aficionado. He can tell you everything there is to know about, you name the universe, he can tell you all of the characters. And uh, he was my, my charge. And I shared a room with my younger sister, Leslie. And then Richard and Walter, my brother, shared a room. So Richard would come into my room at the crack of dawn on Saturday mornings, maybe four or five, and he would stand by my bed and just look at me and poke (laughs) me. And I'd open my eyes. It's Saturday. I've gotten through the school week. And he's just standing there. He's like, cartoons. I'm like, they're not on, Richard. Cartoons. I'm like, Richard, they're not on yet. And he would just sit there or stand there by my bed like a wraith, just <laughs> staring at me. And I'm like, fine. So I get out of bed and I take the top cover and I go in the living room with Richard and I turn on the TV and there was nothing but fuzz because it wasn't 7 a.m. yet and nothing was on. And that little boy would sit on the cow on sit on the carpet in front of the TV and just stare at the static until the cartoon started. But I couldn't leave him in there by himself because he was too little. So I'd have to lay on the couch. And I just remember every, pretty much every Saturday where we weren't out volunteering or even before we would go to volunteer, I would have to be up before 7 a.m. So Richard could stare at the fuzz (laughs) and watch the cartoons. But I realized in retrospect, that was part of my job. My job was that he was mine to make certain he was taken care of. And 
it's a relationship that's lasted. He is still, we, I and mean, we're all very incredibly close. I have a special bond with Richard. I think part of it is vengeance. One day will be mine for the hours <laughs> missed, but he's, he's a remarkable man. And it's, it encapsulates how my family operated, that we had this sense of obligation to one another, the sense of responsibility. And we have these shared experiences. We would go volunteer because my parents believe that our relative poverty did not excuse us from responsibility. I know your, your parents were the same. And they would take us out to volunteer. They would take us to soup kitchens and to youth shelters. And we would go to youth detention centers. They would they wanted us to be not just a part of community, but to understand our responsibility in community. Mm -hmm. And in the process, I think they built in all of us this inexorable commitment to service, to, to doing what we can. And Richard is the perfect example. He eventually... Richard works with uh, the disadvantaged and the marginalized, especially men who are you know, on dual diagnosis and who need help. And it's a perfect example of how my parents raised us. That would be the job that he would take on. First of all, that's incredible. Just a terrific story. But it sounds like Richard could sign up to be like your first constituent as I think about <laughs> public service and what you have done, not just recently, but for the last however many, gosh, it's going on, feels like 20 years, Stacey, because the work that you've done in public service has been just beyond remarkable. But let's go back to your parents and how they set the family up. My mother just told us what to do. I'm not sure she's, she says things like, you're responsible for your three siblings, but it wasn't as clearly delineated as in your family. But when your mom and dad said, you're going to volunteer and we're going to do service, did they tell you why? Did they say you have to help take care of the community or what did they say? Are they an extension of the family? That's what my parents said, but how did your parents explain it? So we had three jobs, go to church, go to school, and they said, take care of each other. And that meant take care of your family members, immediate and otherwise, take care of your neighborhood. But it was also take care of the people they took us to. There was never really a conversation. It was go mm. get in the car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's more common than I thought. We yeah. have way more common. And we would uh, get in the car and you, you could, you, like, where are we going this time? And they would take us and they would tell us what we were going to experience. They'd tell us what they needed us to do. But we didn't talk about it as volunteering. In fact, Andrea was applying to college. She's my oldest sister. She's the oldest of us. And there was this section on the application for volunteer activities. And she came to my mom. I remember this conversation. And she had, she asked my mom, what does that mean? My mom said every Saturday. <laughs> we had this plethora of volunteer experiences, but it was never called service. It was never called volunteering. Mm. It was what you were supposed to do. And my parents raised us with this intentionality of social justice that never had categorization. It was, these people are sick. You should help them get, these people are hungry. We should feed them. It was the, the, the scripture. It was a scriptural responsibility that said, if I was hungry and you fed me, I was naked and you clothed me, oh, I needed right. shelter. They expected us to not just hear it on Sunday, but to live it every day and especially on Saturdays. And then during the summer, as you no doubt experienced. Absolutely. And did you understand it? Because I can remember a being a little kid and our parents and grandparents were bringing the scriptures to life is what mm -hmm. they would explain it as. But I don't remember at least at 12, 10, 12, 14, I don't remember really totally understanding what was going on. I got the whole church thing and the school thing, but the whole reading the text and then behaving or governing yourself accordingly. Did you get that? We did. I, I did in part for, for two reasons. One was that we were poor. We lived in a house that didn't have running water and we mm -hmm. were going to help somebody else. There's a, there seems to be a disconnect in your understanding, mom and dad. <laughs> we, <laughs> we were going to a shelter and the lights were out and weren't going to be on that week. Cable was something you got when everyone got straight A's. There was a winter solstice and alignment of Mercury, Mars and Saturn. <laughs> like magic had to happen for those right. things. to. And so we did look askance at why we were doing these things. And you didn't 
question your parents and not in our family. It wasn't that we couldn't ask questions, but if they said, this is what we were supposed to do, you, you might grumble a little bit, but you did it because it was what you're supposed to do. And you probably experienced it when you're there, the kindness that just comes over you and I don't want to say appreciation, but there's a human connection you make when you're in a space and you're providing food or shelter when you are helping, there is its own reward. And, and that I think we understood no matter how old we were. So that was one piece. The second piece was that my inquisition of my parents was, okay, how are two black people and their six children going to fix Mississippi? That seemed to be what they were trying to do. <laughs> so every time there was a problem, they were going to take us out there to do something about it. I'm like, I just want to point out the inefficiency of your system. <laughs> And I'm like, shouldn't somebody else be doing this? Just as a matter of course, it just didn't seem to me we, we get it all done. And my mom said, that's called government. And I'm like, government sucks. <laughs> like, government is not doing its job. And so my mom and dad explained, they said, this is why we vote, because we have to keep trying to get people into office who will do their part. And that government doesn't suck. Government is what people make of it. And they were very intentional about us understanding that it was people making decisions, not this amorphous entity, people making these choices. And so the, the kernel it planted for me was wanting to understand who these people were, why they weren't solving these very clear problems and why they didn't feel the sense of urgency that my parents felt to ensure that, you know, poor children didn't live in dilapidated housing with substandard education. Like, why would they let that happen? Well, it sounds like your parents, similar to mine, but it really sounds like they were laying down some markers really early about what should and shouldn't be done in life. So I get the church and the service piece. Let's talk about the education piece. I know in my household, the talk of this house was... Once you get your education and you get the knowledge in your head, nobody can take it out. And that enables and empowers you. Tell me what your parents, Carolyn and Richard, your mom was a librarian. So I know you probably get this love of reading from her. True? Both my parents. So yeah, my dad, Robert, was a shipyard worker. My dad is dyslexic, but wasn't diagnosed until he was in his 30s. Wow. And so my father loved stories. He loves loves poetry. He's incredibly thoughtful, but he wasn't proficient in reading. And because he'd grown up in the Jim Crow South as a young black man, the school didn't have the resources and the school system didn't have the intention of understanding what was happening with him. And this is the 1950s, 1960s. They didn't know what dyslexia was really as a, a learning issue. And so my dad wasn't given the resources. So he made it up himself. My dad memorized his way through school. He went to class every day. My dad did not miss school because he understood that if he wasn't there, he wasn't going to get the information because he couldn't go home and read it later. Wow. And so for him, going to class every day was an imperative. Like I had perfect attendance until the 10th grade. I only stopped because I got the mumps. <laughs> and even then my parents were like, are you sure you just didn't eat something? Like, no, my face is swollen to twice its normal size. It's the mumps, mom and dad. And Andrea had it. So they knew, you know, that it was real, but they were very going to school every day was important. My mom being a librarian, my mother, she did. And she wanted us to understand just the beauty of language. And so my mom would make, she read to us all the time. My dad would tell us stories. So both my parents were really intentional about us learning to love language and it was in different ways and i think it was so instructive because for my mom it was the written word it was you know we could read anything you could get your hands on if you could understand it you could read it right. and with a mom who's a librarian i i sometimes reached above my age group but <laughs> i got to read a lot but they both wanted us to get how important it was and my mom it was so important because my mom dropped out of school twice once when she was in elementary school because they couldn't afford it. And just, she had a, a very rough childhood. And for her, us going to school and finishing was so important because she almost didn't. She became the first person in her family to finish high school. And you know, she graduated as valedictorian, so it wasn't enough to just complete school. For both of them, it was, we had to be the best we could at it 
because as you said, they can, when my parents put it, they can take your house, they can take your car, they can take, they can take your job, but they can't take what's in your mind. And so our job was to store as much as possible in there uh, for whatever we needed it for, to be a resource for whatever challenges we faced. Boy, I love that. And it turns out that our parents were right. I know growing up, I thought my parents were not that smart, (laughs) only to find out certainly by the maybe the beginning of college, not the end, but the beginning of college that they were absolutely brilliant. But it sounds like to your parents were the exemplars, like they not only told you, but they showed you. So your parents were going to fix Mississippi and they were going to teach y'all how to do it at the same time. But ultimately you guys came over here to the Peach State. So walk me through that transition and what happened on the educational front once you got over here. So my parents were both very, as I said, very involved in social justice. My dad, by the time I was a teenager, was very involved in prison ministry. We'd volunteered at youth shelters and youth facilities, youth detention. My dad had built the first church on prison grounds. He'd gotten permission from the state of Mississippi, he built a, raised money to build a church. We traveled all across the state going to very different churches. I learned about almost every denomination and non-denomination you could imagine in <laughs> Mississippi. But for him, it was that was critical. And my mom's focus was on poverty and literacy and really doing what she could in that fo- focus. And so they were both recipients of what's called the Denman Award for Evangelism, which is given to lay people who are involved in the work of the Methodist Church. And the bishop basically said, you preach, you teach, you serve. If you go to, you know, if you become ministers, we could pay you for it. And we were all for it. We're like, that sounds like a good idea. Go to have a church and we could take a nap. And my parents, and both my parents have been called to the ministry. For my mom, it was a very difficult thing because she'd been raised in the Baptist tradition where women were not expected to be called into the ministry. And even after she was ordained, my mom continued to face a great deal of pushback because a lot of the churches in Mississippi, black churches in particular, found it hard to acknowledge that a woman could be called into the same, could have the same calling they did. And so one of the things I'm proudest of for both my parents, my mom, you know, her pride of place said she was not going to be told who, who she, who God spoke to. And there were times where my dad, he was like, you won't let her sit in the pulpit. I'm not going to sit there either. And these pastors would be like, but Reverend Abrams, he's like, we're both Reverend Abrams. And either you want both of us or you want neither of us. And so the solidarity that my parents always evinced was as much a part of how we grew up as anything else. And so they both applied to Emory at the age of 40. My older sister was a freshman in college. I was finishing up my sophomore year of high school and they were admitted and they, you know, came to me and said, look, we've both been admitted to Emory. If we go now, you'll have to leave right before your junior year. You'll have to finish your last two years of high school in Atlanta. And they said, will you mind? I'm like, let's see. There's one mall shared by the two largest cities in the southern half of the state. (laughs) And there's one high school. I'm good. We can go. We're good. We're good. So we moved to Georgia. Mom and dad went to Emory. I went to Avondale High School, which was a magnet school at the time. So my younger sister, Leslie, is a great singer, and she wanted to audition to be in the performing arts program, but didn't want to go by herself. So I went with her, and turns out I could act. And we were both in the performing arts program at Avondale High School. I finished high school, was valedictorian, and then went on to Spelman College. Okay. And why did you choose Spelman? My mom tricked me into it. Oh, really? Okay. I don't know this. Tell me how she did that. So I wanted to leave the South. And because I was not allowed to date until I was 16, I was basically heading into my end of my junior year, beginning of my senior year when I was old enough to date. I was not going to a black women's college. (laughs) Like I'm getting out of the South and I'm not going to a girl's school. So I only applied to schools in the North. I applied to Sarah Lawrence, Swarthmore, Vassar, and a couple of other schools, but it was, they were all Northern schools. And my mom said, well, you don't have to go, but just apply to Spelman. And I'm like, fine. So I applied. And I got in. She's like, you don't have to go, but just go visit. I'm like, that's a day off of school. Fine. So I went to go visit. And two things happened. One, I met Janetta B. Cole. And Dr. Cole is one of the most extraordinary women just upon meeting that that voice of God. 
<laughs> that pours from her and just the sheer confidence and pride of place that she holds plus she got into a disagreement with my father about male visitation on campus and she won in front of a whole audience full of men that my dad had riled up these fathers who were upset that their daughters were going to have boys on their rooms <laughs> i always send them to a women's college and she defeated my father in verbal battle which did not happen very often i like you and then the other was much more pedestrian. I saw Morehouse. I saw the school <laughs> full of all these really handsome black men. And I'd never see that many black men in any place outside of, like, I hadn't. I'd gone to schools that were where I was often the only black student in my classes or one of a few. And there was just this whole host of them across the street. <laughs> And I'm like, this is an intellectual exercise. I got to figure out what you do when you're across the street from this many fine men turns out to you not much because i was shyer than i realized but it was still worth going to spelman to see morehouse but more importantly to be educated at this college that helped you explore who you are and what it meant not just to be a black woman but to be in a space where your race and your gender did not define your capacity and i think people often see it in reverse they think oh it's a great place for black women but what was so telling to me is that when you were able to be fully yourself, where race and gender weren't the things that people used to measure the quality of your work, when it was measured based on your production, you realize just how full of capacity you are. And it prepped you to go back into a world that was once again going to make you question the validity of your experience. But there's this armor that you build around you that Spellman helps to to really shape and frame and polish. And it was an extraordinary experience. As you, my sister, my grandmother, my aunt all went to Spellman and they were so upset when I didn't go to Spellman. And now you're making me feel a little guilty. So let yeah, me. You went to, <laughs> Leslie, Janine went to Duke too. So you're fine. Oh, thank you for that. I appreciate that. We're claiming her for sure. Okay. But Talk a little bit, it, as it sounds to me, as if the only mark against Spelman, if you will, was that it was in the South, right? Yes. And no, so, well, it was South and it was a single sex college. Touche, yes. touche. But, but yes. you didn't know it had this complimentary no, I did not. men's college right next door. Your perspective changed a little bit, right? Once you got to visit and actually see it. Talk about the Spelman experience. I understand how it made you feel, but academically you were more than fulfilled, obviously. You enjoyed your time there? I did. I have a tendency to try many things. And Spelman was one of those places when I was growing up, my mom once said to me, I ran the risk of being a jack of all trades and a master of none. <laughs> and so she meant it to encourage me to pick more, to pick one thing or two things and just settle down. I heard it as, we'll just become a master of all things. And so I got to Spelman and I majored in physics and philosophy. I did chemistry and history. I did English and then I realized, or I didn't realize it, the dean would not let me register for a new major. They put up a sign in the registrar's office saying Stacey Abrams is not allowed to declare. <laughs> no, it, it was seriously. It was like, yeah, it was like a most wanted poster. Like I couldn't get the form. <laughs> and then to add insult to the injury, they made me give a speech to incoming freshmen about the joys of being undecided. Shut up. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Oh my goodness. So for people who watched A Different World, the character Freddie on A Different World is based on Dean Freddie Hill, who was the dean at Spelman College. Right. And Dean Hill was the one who put up the little sign and basically said, you don't get to declare another major because you don't know what you want. <laughs> and he, like I, my freshman year, I was a major, double major in physics and philosophy with a minor in theater. I started in the, the spring play for Spelman with Saul Williams, who went on to great fame as a an actor. Nice. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I could do the things I was trying. I just didn't want to do them all the time. And then uh, turns out when you fall asleep in epistemology, possibly philosophy is not for you. <laughs> and so it, by my, by the end of my sophomore year, the Dean and uh, a few others, there was an intervention. <laughs> <laughs> I had to write a paper 
about what I wanted to know when I finished at Spelman College. They were like, just can you narrow it down? <laughs> so I, I took the, the course catalog and I read through it. I read literally every single page of the course catalog. Wait a minute, State. Seriously? Yes. Oh my. Okay. Yeah, look, I was taking most of the classes. So I <laughs> like, I'm just going to read the course catalog. And in the middle, there was this thing called the independent major that oh. no one had ever, no one had used at Spelman. It was in there as an option, but it hadn't been used. So I wrote it. My paper was, here's what I want to know. And at the same time I was doing all this, I was very involved in social justice things. I led with Otis Moss III. We, as Spelman and Morehouse students, led a march after the Rodney King decision. I'd become very involved in labor rights and civil rights issues. You and little Otis, y'all were mixing it up even then. As we, we say, were, little Otis, he, I'm not supposed to call him that anymore. No, he, he was a senior when I was a freshman. He was just the person, I, he was just an idol. He was amazing. And when he graduated, I helped start a couple of organizations. And so I was very involved in that part of my academic or that part of my Spelman experience. And I'd ended up getting into an argument with then Mayor Maynard Jackson heading into my sophomore year. And so he gave me a job and I ended up working for the Office of Youth Services for the city of Atlanta. And that really helped encapsulate and refine what I wanted to know. So when I wrote this paper at the end of my sophomore year, when I went and listed all the classes I really thought I had to take, if I didn't take these things, what would I not know? And I created a major that essentially was a combination of economics, sociology, and political science. And that became my major at Spelman College. Okay. I never knew that story. I thought I knew a lot of them, but I do see a theme here about the research that you not only are willing to do, but that you actually do and you unearth these I'm not going to call them arcane, but these things that most people don't see and don't lever. So let me pull that forward and bring you to public service because that's where we spent most of our time when I had the privilege of serving as president of the city council and you were deputy city attorney. So you had already worked in the city for Maynard Jackson, my political mentor, which is incredible. But I remember not only meeting you, but listening to you for the first time at Leadership Georgia. And this brings your parents back into focus too, because you gave a prayer and it was as if we were all in not church, but church. <laughs> and I remember thinking, okay, I was birthed in the church like you, and I wanted to be like you and hear you more. And when we got to work together at City Hall, it was just so magical. Do you remember when we were sitting up on the dais and I would turn to you, say to the camera, we're going to do X, Y, Z. And then I'd look at you and you'd say, you'd nod your head actually, but you'd shake your head. And I'd say, okay, I changed my mind. We're not doing that. <laughs> I think you skipped past an important part of the story. So we met in 04 and we were both in leadership, Georgia. We were both un unconventional in our approach to Leadership Georgia. It was a great program, enjoyed it, greatly appreciated being in it. And then when Kathy Woolard decided to step down and run for Congress, I called you and said, what did I tell you? <laughs> you need to do this. And so when you ran for, one of the reasons I, I wanted you to be one of the people to run for president of the city council was that during that leadership Georgia process, we ended up talking so much about what we wanted. The program was about what Georgia could look like, where we all fit into leadership for the state. And where we could work together with people we didn't know or understand exactly. or have the same experiences or perspectives. Exactly. And what resonated for me getting to know you was how deeply you loved the city of Atlanta and the way you thought about it as someone who'd been in the medical profession and then had been in real estate and you saw all of these opportunities. And one thing that has always been important to me is connecting the disparate dots that seem completely devoid of connection. And so it was, you embodied that in some ways. And I thought, Knowing Mayor Franklin as I did by then, I'd been serving as deputy city attorney for a couple of years, 
that you were emblematic of the kind of person who could help lead the city council. And so part of my job was as deputy city attorney, I would sit with the city attorney and it was my job to provide legal advice on a range of issues. And it was right up my alley because we could go from real estate to transportation to public safety. And part of my responsibility was to know enough about the laws that were up for discussion that I could answer legal questions. And part of my responsibility was to answer the legal questions with an understanding of the political issues, but without trying to you know be one myself. And you were so thoughtful when you would bring me in to answer questions <laughs> because you were aware that there it, it's hard to tell elected officials, no, you can't, especially on camera. And often when the debates would devolve into that kind of rancor, <laughs> it was my job often to say, here are the legal reasons why that's not permissible. And it was a unique facet, I think, or not unique, but certainly unusual facet of Atlanta that the city attorney team was so involved on a week to week basis. And that was my job to sit there on Mondays and answer those questions. Listen, you were absolutely not only dynamic and deliberate, but just completely dedicated to making sure we got not only the right information, but that we applied it appropriately. And you were the voice of reason and authority. And that's where you stand today. So let's pull that forward to your own public service at the Capitol for 11 years and then minority leader for seven. Can you talk about working there, not only with your caucus, but with the other side of the aisle and how you were able to navigate a place in a time where Democrats were not in the majority and the traditional levers of power didn't work, like how you navigated that. Cause it, the, the stuff at city hall, man, that was just a damn dress rehearsal for what <laughs> went on at the Capitol. So take me there. The two most formative parts of my time at uh, my first session one, I'd raised a lot of money for my seat in Georgia, as people no doubt know, we have a runoff system. If you don't get 50% plus one, you go into a runoff. And I was in an open seat with two opponents, one of whom had held this uh, version of the seat for 12 years. And the other had grown up across like in the neighborhood I was running from and had been there 40 years. I've been there four years. I and remember so this. There was uh, actually two years and being, I, yeah, I bought my house uh, yeah, I think I was there for two years and I was not of the space. And so part of my job was to, I had to raise enough money to spread my name and to run the kind of campaign I thought I needed to run, which meant I came into the legislature with sort of a capacity for resources that wasn't the norm. I'm really good at begging for money. As the daughter of pastors, <laughs> you learn how to pass the plate and when it's time exactly. and you don't stop until you get the money exactly. you need. Exactly. So when I was in the legislature, I was tapped by the minority leader, DeBose Porter. He, he gave me two really important lessons. One, he actually drafted me to go to the well and try to defeat a bill. And I had no interest in it, didn't want to go, was ready to go home. <laughs> but he said, I knew the bill very well. And when I got to the, my approach had been learned in part from the city, which is that some people go to argue about legislation in order to change the minds of people by telling them why they're wrong. And I learned at the city, you can't win that way. When you're telling someone they're wrong, all they can hear is you are saying they're wrong. Yeah, they just shut down. They, they shut become down. defensive. Yeah. And so instead, it was about trying to give people a way to be right. And so I, and for me, that is have the most information possible and the least emotion possible. Because when people think you are leveraging your affect to change their minds, they can either believe it or they discount it and thus everything else you say. And for me, I, I was very aware of who I was as I stood there. This is an emotional issue. And if I layered motion on top of it, it would give people reason to recoil. And so my job was to give them information and space that it was about education versus fighting. And mm. it became part of my approach to debate. 
I want to win, but I'm not going to win by telling you you're completely wrong. I'm going to win by giving you a reason to join me. And then during my tenure, during my same year, I was in a committee meeting and I started on the committee with David Ralston, who's now the speaker. He was the chair of the committee. He was, very, he was a very thoughtful committee chair who, his side was going to win most things. So he didn't see the problem of letting us have a voice. And he actually ran very fair hearings where people got to speak and ask questions. And there was a Republican that I was on the committee with who was doing, he was trying to pass a bill that was fairly innocuous. I didn't like it, but it wasn't going to destroy humanity. So I'm like, okay, whatever. But he was trying to make amendments and the amendments weren't quite accurate. And mm -hmm. because I had been the lawyer for the city, I knew how to edit legislation. You used to have to do it on the fly sitting at the dais. And so I was sending him notes like, okay, this is what you need to say. This is what you need. So finally he came up and sat beside me. <laughs> he was like, you just do this, Stacey. And so I basically helped him amend his bill. So we get all the amendments through and we adopt the amendments. The speaker calls for a vote on the final bill and I vote no. Everyone else votes yes. And he's the chairman at the time, not the speaker, but the chair. So <laughs> he says, you know, Representative Abrams, do you want us to vote again? You voted no. I said, oh, no. I, I intended to vote no. And John looks at me, the guy with the bill, he was like, what would you, you help me fix? It? I said, I think it's a bad idea. I just don't think it should be bad law. <laughs> and, <laughs> but what that did for me was that I got a reputation and, and I, I worked hard to, to earn it as someone that either party could talk to. Anyone could bring me their legislation, even the one independent we had. I would give them the advice but I would also warn them if I didn't like it, I'm going to try to defeat it, but let me give you a chance to fix it. Right. Or if it's unfixable, you should know why I'm not going to you know, just let it pass as is. And so I, I was able to build a rapport and relationship with Republicans, not based on a compromised value system of mine or of theirs, but one that said, if there were spaces where I could be helpful, there was no harm to me to do that. But when I needed to disagree, there was an authenticity to my disagreement. And you don't have the standing to say that I'm somehow obstructionist. I'll, I'll help you when I can, but I will defeat you when I should. And I think it was that navigation that made it much easier for me when I became leader. I still had that approach. Republicans would bring me their bills. And I would say, okay, here's, I would do these three things. And they would say, will you sign it? I'm like, no, I'm going to try my best to kill it and make sure it never sees the light of day. But you should still fix these three things if you want to be legal. And what I hope people experienced of me was my ethic of, I didn't stop being an attorney. My job is to make sure the law is right. I'm the daughter of two people of incredible conscience. And my responsibility is to do what's right. And I was the leader of the opposition. My job is to fight for what's right. And right. those were the ways that I tried to navigate my space. Stacey, the notion of just radical authenticity, candor, and just incredible transparency. I, I remember talking to some of those legislators and frankly, some of the lobbyists about you and that reputation, that brand is still right on your forehead, even though you don't walk the halls of the Capitol. I think your spirit still walks the halls of the Capitol. So let me turn to another time where you were not necessarily on opposing sides to someone but where people are asking, what's the real deal? Or how do I get this done? When you and I and a group of women were trying to bring the Atlanta dream, a women's professional <laughs> basketball team to Atlanta, I remember turning to you, number one, because you were my friend and I trusted you. Number two, because you were an attorney and I needed the lease negotiated at the arena. But number three, because of the way you conduct yourself on a regular basis. Do you remember when we had this crazy idea oh. and said we could get this done and everybody else said we couldn't? Let's not say we. You called me. You were <laughs> at a game and you called me and said, Stacy, I have an idea. I said, what? She's like, we're going to bring a WNBA team to Atlanta. And I think I said, what's the WNBA? <laughs> because I, I, not quite that bad. I was not a sports aficionado. You 
and my business partner who became our business partner, Laura Hodgson, you two loved sports. I appreciate sports. I understand them. I'm not a devotee. And so you tell me that you want to bring this team and I'm like, let's talk to Laura, see what, let's see what we can do. We came together and we created this group of women called the Circle of Friends. We let some good men in and it was the most atypical approach because usually someone decides they want to buy a team. You didn't have the resources to purchase a team. And so we decided to find an owner. And that was the most innovative thinking I had seen in such a long time that rather than give up because you didn't have the resources to accomplish it, you said, let's find someone with those resources and convince that person or that consortium that they wanted to do it. And so my job was to understand the rules of the NBA and the WNBA to find out, could we do this? To find out what the thresholds were. You took the lead on figuring out who it could be and what that could look like. And Laura, who went to you know, Harvard Business School, she was working on the back office finances and what that should look like. And the three of us, and we brought in some really amazing women to and men to, to help. But it was this radical idea <laughs> that we were gonna <laughs> okay we were you gonna... called it crazy then let me just i did oh no i said <laughs> I, like you i think i said crazy multiple times try to put it in our the name of our group but it was <laughs> it was extraordinarily successful because we found someone who admitted but for our work and but for your vision would never have thought of himself as the person to buy this team. And even when he decided to sell because of the experience that I'd had with you, because I got to get yelled at by David Stern during the <laughs> negotiation of this, the purchase. And then I learned how to negotiate a, an arena lease. When the next person decided to buy the team from him, she reached out and said, can you buy, help me buy this team? And I'm like, okay, happy to do it. And it was an amazing set of opportunities that came my way, even though I would never have thought of myself as someone who was going to be a WNBA champion. I am so committed and so devout now. I, I serve on the Players Association. And of course, you ran the league. It was one of those moments where I found something in myself and found out something about myself I didn't know. It if On the list of 100 things insane that I would try. None of them included <laughs> helping to purchase, sell and repurchase, and then, you know, build a third ownership team for a WNBA team that is still thriving and doing well. Which is remarkable when I think back about it too. We had, thank you for the kind words about innovative thinking. I believe you 1000% then and now it was a little bit crazy, but Geez, oh, Pete, it absolutely worked. But the whole notion of having a vision for how things should be, the dream offered women an opportunity to reach their dreams who wanted to play professional sports. And you've done the same thing in the state of Georgia when you have had the vision of how life should be, what public policy should be, who should have access to resources. Can you talk a little bit about the groups you've put together, the teams that you've put together. Everybody knows a little bit about Fair Fight, but I don't think they know the backstory of what your thinking was and why you put it together. They just see the end result 10 years, eight years later and say, oh, she just turned on a light switch. And that just didn't happen. This whole notion of planning and preparation and perseverance is a whole nother animal. Can you talk about those organizations and how they're interrelated? As you said at the outset, when I joined the legislature, Democrats were in decline, is a nice way of putting it. By 2010, we had reached the bottom, nearly. There was only a few more rungs down. And I stood for leader. And part of my job was to figure out how do we start climbing back up. Inside the caucus, I did. I used the learnings I had from working with you, from working with Laura, from working with my parents, my time at the law firm and realized you know, I had to once again think about what trades, becoming a master of all these pieces that it would take to build a successful democratic party again. 
and, and that's not to say that there weren't others working on this, but my so from my corner of the world, I had this entity called the House Caucus, and I was the leader, and it had these mechanisms. And so I read through all the things you could do. I read through the campaign finance rules, and I I did what we had done uh, so many other times, and I figured out what power is here that is obvious, and then what power is not obvious. How do you do this in a way that builds infrastructure and is sustainable? And so started that in 2010, did a lot of research, put together decks and their presentation skills about business that people don't usually think about in politics. But again, because of the work I'd done with Laura and with you, I, I knew how to make a business case for this political endeavor. 2014, one of the realizations was that we needed customers and the customer base meant we had to get people who registered to vote. Now, voter registration in Georgia is nonpartisan as it should be. And so my approach was we're going to focus on the least resourced group of people who need to register. And that was people of color. And if you're in politics, that's your customer base, getting constituents who are registered and able to participate. So I created the New Georgia Project. Uh, I, I was able to spin that off into its own standalone entity in 2017. It's run very ably by NSA UFOT now. But when I did it in 14, it was quite novel and controversial. It was the single largest voter registration effort in Georgia since Vernon Jordan in the 1960s and 70s. And we were able to collect registrations in four months from more than 87,000 people. And so it was that first big entity because then the focus was on voter registration. And this is in the wake of the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act, which meant that all of the pieces of voting that used to be at least level had become very difficult. And Georgia was part of a phalanx of states that were doing everything in their power to squeeze out voters and to create barriers to process and to, to entry and participation. Oh, that was you. They were turning it into only the top tier of yeah. people in their little club, those who were in power, yeah. who wanted to stay in power. Exactly. So again, this whole notion of research and access and creating infrastructure and capacity, because the capability is there, but the capacity exactly. wasn't there without people literally having registered to vote. That was true. And so we did that. I did that in 14. And then uh, we also created a second organization called the Voter Access Institute because giving people, helping people register to vote was one part of the puzzle. But registration is irrelevant if people don't know what they're voting for or have a reason to vote. And so the Voter Access Institute really focused on how do we identify the barriers to participation, both external barriers being created but also the internal barriers that come about when you haven't been part of the process. And so VAI started that work. Fast forward to 2018, you know, ran for governor, didn't become governor. And then this 10-day period between election day and my non-concession day, I really spent time thinking about what we had built, what that campaign had meant, how many thousands of people had seen themselves embodied in that campaign and had turned out who had not voted before it. And I want people who didn't follow it to understand in 2014, when the top of the ticket included two extraordinary people, Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn, grandson of Jimmy Carter, daughter of Sam Nunn, former Senator Sam Nunn, the top of the ticket in 2014 turned out 1.1 million people. In 2018, we turned out 1.9 million people, including 1.2 million Black voters. Which is a, absolutely amazing. When people look at the numbers, they're like, how the hell did you guys do that? But it didn't happen overnight. It took time and exactly. energy and effort and collaboration. And it, the infrastructure that you talked about, the building, and Lauren Groorgo, who was my campaign manager, has been just absolutely instrumental in all of this work. She and I start working together in 2011. She and I understood that we, again, had to build this thing, had to build an entity. It was a campaign, but it was a campaign that was built on the premise of a startup. It was built on the premise of reaching customers no one had ever tried to reach. It was built on this very deep entrepreneurial space, but it was also grounded 
and the deep sense of social justice, which is why we centered communities of color. We centered the marginalized and the disadvantaged, and we talked about them. We didn't talk about it in a whisper when we were just in the rooms with them. They were front and center. We were like, this is what we're doing this for. We want everyone to be a part of it. But none of this matters if we don't have these groups that have been so distanced from power for so long, if we don't let them know that they are a part of the solution. And it worked. We tripled Latino turnout, tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout, increased youth participation rates by more than 130%. Black voters went from being considered topped out to showing out at 1.2 million voters. And we increased white participation for Democrats for the first time since Bill Clinton. As I say, hello, hello, are y'all with me? Hello. And yet I'm not governor. And and that was the other piece of this. So the that campaign was another opportunity to build infrastructure. What we wanted to have happen, what I needed to do, when I didn't win on November 6th, we had gotten thou- tens of thousands of calls about voter suppression. We had watched the very pallid and bumbling defenses that Brian Kemp offered for his perfidy and his bad behavior. We knew that the voter suppression we were fighting against had been a decade in the making and would not be undone in a 10-day period. And so it was not a surprise when we reached the end of that 10 days and we didn't have the votes we needed. We came pretty close to forcing a runoff, but it didn't quite materialize. My responsibility then was either to contest the election and say that the the vote had the challenge the election itself. That did not cross my mind, except for the one time somebody asked me in that process, because the team I had around me understood intuitively what my answer would be, which is that the minute I turn this campaign into a validation of me, when I become the reason we fight, when it is about making me governor, then it makes a lie of every time I said that we're in this together. The responsible option and the only option was to instead challenge the system from a platform that only I possessed. I was the only person who had been able to do this. And I was the only person who stood in the public zeitgeist in the way I did. And so my job was, okay, if I've got it, let me use it. It's painful and deeply angry and I'm sad every other Thursday. And this is, I mean, it, it's, it was heart-wrenching, but it was also the only responsible thing to do, which was, if you say the system is broken, you can't let it remain. And so Fair Fight was born of that. It was born of this belief that we could take everything we built in this campaign and transform it into a fight to protect democracy, starting in Georgia, but going eventually nationwide. And so we started in, we launched November 16th, 2018. By August of 2019, we were in 20 states and we helped affect, we helped in effect to build voter protection teams across this country. And as my friend Ben Wickler in Wisconsin will tell you and others, we helped to change the outcome not only in Georgia in the 2020 election, but we helped reduce or mitigate barriers in 20 states that allowed people to participate. Some, not every state flipped, but every state saw progress and that was part of it. But Fair Fight was only one part of the ecosystem. I was really angry. (laughs) And so- Listen, I remember those days and let me just step back and push back on you because having- served in public office. You did it. I did it. You and I both know there are many people who are not public servants. They are politicians and it is about them and it is about holding on to power. So the fact that you had the perspective, it is way more evolved than I would say 75, 80% of those who are in office. And I mean, on both sides of the aisle, it's not just one party who struggles with this, but the enlightened perspective of you to say, this is really bigger than me. I have the ability to change this, to fix this, to help guide this to a new place. I'm sorry, Stacey, that is not the traditional point of view. Let me just be absolutely clear here. Now you can keep going. I would say much in the way I did at Spelman and in other facets of my life, I needed to understand the ecosystem. Fair Fight was about ensuring that we had a democracy that was 
responsive and respectful of the right of every citizen to cast a ballot if they were eligible. But I became leader and my first legislative session was in the year of, of redistricting. And so we had a special session and I watched partisan gerrymandering at its most grotesque as they, with surgical precision, targeted white women who represented communities of color where integrated voting had actually worked, where they divided and just slashed through non-Black communities of color because they didn't think that it was worthy of those communities to be allowed to elect representation that reflected their needs. It was the most grotesque thing I had participated in to that moment. And so in 2018, I'm thinking the census is coming in 2020. If we're not ready, if we're not ready for the 2020 census, we are going to be destroyed. Not again, not me personally, I don't ever plan to run for Congress, but we as Americans, we as Georgians will not be permitted to pick our leaders because the lines will be drawn to either silence our voices or to mute our choices such that participation is irrelevant. And so I created Fair Count, which is this extraordinary organization that focuses on the census, not as a once in a decade intrusion into our privacy, but as a 10-year opportunity to grow power for those who are so often left out of the process. And they've been exceptional at this. And then the third group completed the circle for me because if Fair Fight is about democracy and Fair Count is really about the inputs into that democracy, both the $1.5 trillion we spend based on the census and the ability to pick our leaders from city council, school board, all the way to Congress, then the issue is what are they voting on once we have them? We can vote them in and they can vote for us. What do they vote on? And so the Southern Economic Advancement Project is the public policy entity I set up. And we focus on the, the 12 states in the South. We are focused on how do we lift up organizations, serve as a bridge between organizations and trying to get access to power because a lot of these are small organizations are never going to be on anyone's radar, but they're doing all the good work. Mm -hmm. How do we give them the resources they need? We provide data visualization tools for them, communication skills. We do training and we are convener. People listen to me sometimes. So I help bring people together. We've been working with black farmers and we've been dealing with climate issues in the South, which are very different than the climate issues as you talk about them nationally. And we have the most exciting initiative is called South Strong. It's 12 states that are organized to make certain that COVID recovery actually fixes the broken pieces that we have in the South, our broken public health infrastructure, our broken public benefit system, things that across the country people take for granted as being at least mildly functional that we in the South have watched completely you know, get decimated by COVID, but they were pretty broken before COVID hit. And so how do we use COVID recovery to actually fix the broken places? And so that's it. That's what I do. So the ecosystem, if I can just step back for just a second, because as I think about the three pieces, the big pillars, if you will, in that ecosystem, like I can hear your parents talking to you about a broken government and how you can't complain about that. You have to get in and help make the difference and get your fingerprints mm -hmm. uh, on whatever is happening. And in effect, you decided not to just get your fingerprints. You decided to take the wheel and start driving the bus by creating this infrastructure and this ecosystem. If you had to write your headline, I know we've talked about this before, if you had to write a headline about what you've done thus far for this generation and perhaps the next, what would that headline say, if nothing else, based on this ecosystem that you put together? But don't let me constrain you. If you have something else that you'd have the headline say. I hope it says that you know, she tried to fix the broken places. Wow. Wow. Okay. That headline works for me. <laughs> so if you had a magic wand and you could fix something tomorrow, what would it be? Poverty. Poverty is a waste of human capital. It is one of the metrics of almost every darkness, every sociopathy, every challenge. 
you dig deep enough and you'll find poverty at the center of undereducation, of incarceration, of health issues, of climate action. Poverty is this immorality that we sit with because we misunderstood the edict in Matthew. It wasn't that the poor will always be among you as a fait accompli. It was a challenge. It's our job to fix that, to stop that. And everything else becomes so much easier to handle when poverty is off the table. Touche. And to quote the book of Luke, to whom much is given, much is required. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Stacey Abrams, my sister from another mister, let me thank you. You are absolutely a gem. I'm so proud of you. And just know, I'm still ride or die. Whatever you gonna do, I'm gonna be right there with you. I adore you, Lisa Borders. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone. That was this week's episode of Enlightened. I hope you learned something new and feel inspired to meet any challenge you may be facing in life. If you enjoy the energy we're creating here, subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the Enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper discussions at lisaborders.us. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.